This morning we are starting a, a look at the book of Colossians, which is a, in the New Testament. Just wanted to say a few words before Emma uh, reads that for us. Uh, this letter to the Colossians is now either pixels on a screen or printed in a weighty Bible, uh, full of authority and full of dignity. But of course, this letter started life on a thin roll of papyrus that a Christian leader called Paul wrote whilst he was in prison about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The young church in Colossae was started by someone called Epaphras. Epaphras had been in Paul's church planting college in Ephesus. Now, Colossae was a medium-sized, multicultural city. It was perched on the banks of the Lycus River, uh, and we would now say it was in Turkey. Uh, Paul doesn't know this church. He didn't start it. But listen out uh, over the next few weeks to this letter that's full of warmth and full of a deep prayerfulness and a profound hope and brilliant answers to two big issues that were confusing this tiny little church. And as we hear Emma read the first part of the letter to us this morning, pitch yourselves not in Winchester in January in the cold, but pitch yourself in a first century house in Turkey. So just allow yourself to imagine that the thermometer has crept up a little bit. And you're in, you're in Turkey and you're in a house, and it's the first century with all the sights and the smells that go with it. You've shared a meal together, and now Epaphras, who's your uh, minister, he's not a, he's not a vicar, he's, he's a guy who's helped start the church. And he stands up at the front with this slightly ragged roll of papyrus, and he starts to read. And he reads a letter of staggering hope and vision. And Emma's going to bring the first part of it now. The reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is the faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord 
and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Emma. What I'd love to do this morning is just uh, to begin to unpack uh, that passage for all of us as we start uh, this series uh, together. If I've not had a chance uh, to wish you personally a happy new year as yet, may I do so now. And uh, thank you for all of your love and your support. Uh, And uh, so many people give so generously of their time and their prayers and energies and their thoughts to make this an abundant uh, church where so many exciting things are going on. I want to ask a simple question this morning, and here's the question. Uh, The question is this, what happens when the gospel of Jesus takes root in an individual and then more widely in a community? It was so lovely to hear Sanjay's story. Sanjay is an absolute gift to the uh, city of Winchester. He arrived just before Christmas. Uh, He's part of our ministers group. We get together and pray uh, together every week. Uh, Just wonderful, though, in a sense, to hear that story, uh, condensed and compressed, of course, uh, but to see what happens when uh, the seed of the gospel lands and and takes root in a heart and and what all the growth that happens and all the exciting things uh, that take place. And that's what I want to look at this morning and then ask, well, where does that leave us uh, today? Three things, I think, happen when the seed of the gospel takes root in a person's heart, and see if this is true of your experience. The first is this, that faith and love spring up. And he says that most clearly in verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard. So when the gospel lands in a person, faith and love are the things that begin to flourish, however barren the soil of your heart has been previously. But it's not any old faith and love. It's not generic faith and love. It's a very specific kind of faith and love, and that's the faith and love uh, that comes uh, from Jesus himself. Now, next week, we're going to be hearing, um, in this, as we look at the second half of the first chapter of Colossians, we're going to be hearing a much fuller declaration of uh, who Jesus is. One of the things that was, in a sense, uh, being discussed between Paul and his church at Colossae was who is Jesus? Why does he matter? And uh, that, what we get next week in the second half of the first chapter of Colossians is one of the New Testament's fullest and most beautiful portraits of him. A bit like John's Gospel. takes us right back to creation, uh, but puts the cross at the center of everything. And so we'll look more at that, about that next week. What we see today is that when the seed of the gospel lands, that stuff begins to happen in a person's heart. Yes, sometimes slowly, 
uh, sometimes far, uh, vast, but uh, f- important deep things begin to spring out of us. It's head and it's heart fully involved. I guess each of us would say we had a different starting point. Uh, for Sanjay, it was interesting, it was neighbors, wasn't it, who in a sense just shared with him both, I guess, in, in what they did and how they lived, but also in what they said in invitations that they made to him. Uh, for us here, maybe our faith began in this church or in another church or through parents or through relatives or through friends. Different starting points for all of us. One of the common things that happens when the gospel takes root is that this faith in Jesus and this love for Jesus and for those that Jesus is love, that Jesus loves, springs up in us. And it's never totally individual, is it? Uh, however individual the beginnings of our faith may be, almost always we are drawn into a wider community. And that's both wonderful because in the wider Christian community we're encouraged, we're taught, we get to see what Christian faith looks like in other people. But of course there are challenges as well as we rub up against other people, as we learn what it means to forgive, to be patient, uh, to put up with people who are different uh, from us. So that's the first thing we see, faith and love springing up inside a person. The second one is the beginnings of a slow but sure transformation. And Paul, uh, lots of places likes to, but particularly here, likes to use lots of images about growth. And they're very organic, they're sort of gardening-y, sort of gardener's question uh, type you know, images, uh, all about things springing uh, into life. Uh, the Christian life The particular insight that Paul has in this passage, because obviously he uses images of growth a lot, but the particular insight he has here is that the Christian life is marked by a deepening gratitude. That the person in whom a seed of the gospel has landed, we find ourselves in a totally new place. And it's a place that is marked by gratitude to God. A a, a deep and very blessed gratitude that says, I know how God sees me, and I know what God thinks of me, and I know that he sees right through to my very heart with all of my peculiarities and with all of my insecurities and with all of my failures. And in seeing me, he loves me. And in seeing me, he wants to give good things to me. And in seeing me, he wants to use me, even me, to bring blessing in our world. It's a place of gratitude. And that's why, and and forgive, in one sense, forgive the cheese. It is preacher's cheese. But that's why we've chosen to name this series Thanks Living, rather than simply Thanksgiving. And the insight here is that the word Thanksgiving... uh, tends to be, we tend to think of it in our minds as something that takes place here. So kind of it's a churchy thing. Or it's a sit at home privately uh, with a little book of prayers thing. Or it's a sung worship thing. Uh, For Paul, it was much bigger than that. And so we're sort of trying to invent this new word, thanks living, which basically says that because of what God has done in us, we want to give back the whole of our lives in thankful praise and adoration. 
There's no compartments. There's no God here, God not here thought for a Christian. And in a few weeks' time, in chapter 3, we're going to see this much more up close, where Paul basically says, everything you do and everything you say, do it all giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. He sees the whole of our lives as, in a sense, a place in which we can live out thanks to God. Now, that's a beautiful thought for all of us, because it means whatever you're going to tomorrow whatever workplace, whatever role within the home, whatever school that you're going to, whatever role that you have in your community, that is a place where you can live out your gratitude and love for God. It's a beautiful thing. The third thing that Paul notices and draws our attention to when the seed of the gospel lands in a person's life is that that person is drawn into a life of hope filled and never-ending prayer. You may have, in a sense, overheard some of the prayers in the passage that Emma read for us. We see prayer that is selfless, and we see prayer that is generous, and we see prayer that is wholehearted. And just, you know, the just amazing prayers that Paul prays. He says, We ask continually God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, may please him in every way, bearing fruit, and just it goes on and on and on. Prayer rooted in hope, this is, that we overhear from Paul. And in my experience, especially these last two years, I think prayer is the only antidote to self-pity. I found that self-pity is so constantly beckoning me to sort of come and, come and play, come and indulge, uh, come and just feel sorry for yourself. Prayer is such a beautiful antidote uh, to self-pity, especially this kind of prayer that is so selfless, so generous, so wholehearted. Prayer is mysteriously but definitely how God builds his kingdom in our world, how God changes our world. This prayer is not begrudging, and it's not dutiful. Uh, Paul does describe it in chapter 4 as being like wrestling. So it's, you know, it's active, it involves all of us. It's not just passive, it's not just sitting quietly in a corner. There's a, there's a sense of throwing ourselves into it. That's how Paul starts this hope-filled letter. Remember, Paul is in prison when he's writing this, for being a Christian. This little church, this tiny little church community that maybe meet in one or two houses in Colossae. Tiny little community. And yet Paul is saying to them, the deeper, truer picture of what is actually going on in the world is brighter and sharper and deeper than they can possibly imagine. And they will need, as Paul has learned to, to see and experience the world differently. Now, at the start of this new year, with hope, a bit of a rare commodity, and countless reasons to be gloomy and to feel self-pity, here are my top three follow-ons from this fascinating and fantastic early section of Paul's ancient letter. First one is this, did you notice how the gospel lands in a human heart? How it all begins. 
This is what Paul says. He says, he says to the Colossians, since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So here's the thing. Uh, whether you're uh, watching this online or whether you're uh, here in the building, maybe, maybe you've never actually heard the gospel, the, the Christian good news, or you've not heard it properly, or you've not heard it fully. Well, if that is the case, then please come and talk to myself or Craig or James or remember the staff or the person that you've come with or someone that you know. Uh, contact us um, and ask us uh, to meet with you or just come on the next Alpha course, which starts in a few weeks' at time. Maybe you've heard it, you've heard the gospel, but you've never understood it. You might understand lots of things, because there's lots of clever people here who understands all kinds of things, but being clever does not necessarily mean you understand the gospel and you understand grace. That's okay. We can help you with that. We would be delighted to do that. There are basically explaining to somebody what the gospel means and how it lands in a human heart is definitely in our top three things to do of any week. So don't think we're ever too busy to grab a coffee and just say, can you just explain it to me, like in simple words. Uh, we, went, we were out on Friday night, and it was fantastic. We played a game which we've never played before, which was like charades, but you were only allowed to use words of one syllable. And for chatty, articulate people like me, it was a disaster, because <laughs> I like to use words of three, four, or five syllables, and it was really hard. But I promise, Book a coffee with me, or with Craig, or with James, or with any, any other team, and just say, please explain the gospel. It can be one syllable if you want, in, in ways that I will understand. Because it does need to be received and understood, and people just need to sit down and explain it uh, to us. So come and talk with us, uh, please. The gospel has to penetrate head and heart. It challenges, it undermines human pride, but it is fundamentally liberating. Those of you who are Christians listening today, don't presume who, that people who say they aren't Christians have either heard, let alone understood, what the gospel is. Some have, but many haven't. And many believe things about God and about the Christian faith and about the Bible and about the gospel that are utter nonsense. But no one has ever explained things to them differently. Maybe that is your role uh, with a friend. Gently to say, you know, before you write everything off, can we just check what it is that you're writing off? Because the, the God that you're writing off may not be the God that I believe in. And it'd be lovely to have a chat and, and see if we can uh, understand the gospel more clearly. Tom Wright, is a wonderful theologian, writes that the gospel is a story that explains and a message that transforms. That is a very powerful combination, i.e. that the gospel, the good news that we have as Christians, explains everything that's important, explains who God is, explains what the world is like, explains both our beauty and our brokenness. It makes sense. It's, it's a story, it's, it's news that makes sense of who we are. It doesn't confuse things, it sheds light. But it's not only that, it's a message that transforms. 
When it gets into a human heart, it changes that heart. It begins to subvert what is going on in that human heart. And it begins to change people who then change communities. Now think of little Epaphras in Colossae 2,000 years ago. Think of Sanjay growing up in Mumbai. See what happens when seeds of the gospel land. Second reflection is just to remind us that we are surrounded, aren't we, by anxious people who are seeking fulfillment. But as they do so, they're bemoaning their fragility and they're longing to be good, but they're disillusioned because they never get close to being good. They need good news. We have good news. Good news for our world, that there is justice and peace. Good news for our life with God. He's acted in history to make us his own. Good news for our time here on earth, that uh, we are given in Jesus an identity that is not dependent either on our successes or on our failures. Last thing to say is that every ideology and every political vision is continually put to the test and found wanting. As Epaphras stood up nearly 2,000 years ago in that house in Turkey to read this letter for the first time, all the bets would have been on the power of imperial Rome that ruled the known world. And if you'd put the, the power of imperial Rome on one side and little Epaphras with his bit of papyrus on the other side, every single person in this room would have bet on Rome. Absolutely, without doubt. But it was Rome that withered and failed, corrupt and redundant. And here we are 2,000 years later, and Epaphras, the letter that he read is in this Bible and is read across the world today. Would you like to be a part of a church that takes the gospel of Jesus seriously and joyfully? That's what we offer you this year. Would you like to be part of a church that takes God at his word? Would you like to be part of a church that believes that we have good news? We have good news that makes sense of the world, and we have good news that transforms individuals and communities. Would you like to be part of a church that rises above the dismal little lies that our culture is trying to ram down our throats? Would you like to be part of a church that rejoices in the love and the grace of Jesus? A church that is experiencing a slow but sure transformation, learning to live in gratitude. A church where we don't just praise God on a Sunday, but we live in gratitude to God in our workplace and on our street, in that scout group, in the school, wherever it is we find ourselves. Would you like to be part of a church that is drawn into a life of hopeful and generous and never-ending prayer? Every generation has to do this afresh. We have to shake off institutional inertia and hopelessness. We have to regain that radical loving edge that is so easily dulled by greed and by respectability. We need to throw both of those things off. We need to retune our hearts to the natural rhythms of God's grace. Sisters and brothers, we have good news. 
we have good news at a time when our hurting world has never needed or wanted good news as much as it needs it today. Amen.